0: Well, first of all, congratulations on navigating St. Patrick's Day parade traffic. It's always an adventure every year. It's always crazy on this day. So I'm glad you made it. I'm sure there'll be people coming uh, as we go, but thank you for being here. Uh, Last week we started a series on the church, and the main reason why we did it is because of today's sermon. We want to talk about deacons, but we wanted to frame it in the larger framework of what it means to be a part of the church. And so my prayer today is that this would not only be an encouraging time as we think about deacons, but also that it would challenge us to think about the church. Because I think as we think about deacons, we're talking about the church. And so let me, let me just pray and ask that God would bless our time together. Uh, Father, we, as always, want to stop and acknowledge that we need your help and that we need your spirit to work today. Uh, it is very easy for us to become distracted. It is very easy for us to lose focus. It is very easy for our minds to wander and think about things that are not near as important as what your word teaches. And so, Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us and that you would allow us to lock into your word today. And that as we think about deacons, we wouldn't just be challenged to think about deacons, but we would be challenged to think about your church, and ultimately we'd be challenged to think about you. And so, Father, we ask that you would be merciful. We ask that your spirit would be present. We ask that ultimately we would leave here today worshiping. The goal of today's sermon is not to gather information, it's not to come with more facts. Rather, it's to leave here worshiping because you are a great God who cares for your church. And Father, we pray that you do all this because you're gracious and we know, we know that you love us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when I was growing up, my exposure to the term deacon came in two forms. Uh, first of all, there was a man that was in the hometown where I grew up who was known for his shady business practices. He also happened to be a deacon at the church, and so whenever adults would talk, whenever adults in my town would talk about this guy, they would always mention those two facts together: that he is an extremely shady businessman, and he's also a deacon in the church. And the reason why they would do that is because they wanted to point out that he was hypocritical, and maybe even possibly they wanted to point out that Christians in general were hypocritical. And so this is one exposure I had to the term deacon, the shady businessman. The other exposure I had to this term actually came from. Uh, My love of sports. When I was a young kid, I always loved sports. I loved learning the nicknames of teams. And I knew that there was a college sports team named the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Now, I had no idea what a demon deacon was. I just knew that was their nickname. And truth be known, I still don't know what a demon deacon is. I'm not sure if that's a a leader in Satan's church, if that's what they're saying, or if this is just a demon gone rogue or a, a deacon gone rogue. Either way, I'm troubled by both, but I don't know what it was. So that was the only thing I knew about deacons. I knew there was a weird college sports team, and I knew that there was a shady businessman who was hypocritical. And so I think it's safe to say that I did not know what a deacon was growing up. I didn't, have, I didn't have any idea what they were actually supposed to do in the church. But the truth is, even after I came to know Christ and I became more committed to the church, I still really wasn't sure what a deacon was or what they were supposed to do. I knew that they were involved in the church, and I knew at some level they had an office in the church or they were leaders in the church, but I wasn't sure exactly what they were supposed to, or what they were supposed to do. And I suspect that I'm probably not the only one who's wondered about those things. In fact, maybe even today... If I were to ask you as you're on your way in, what do you think a deacon is? I would guess that maybe not everyone would be able to give a clear articulation of what scripture says about the role of deacon. But I think this is an important question for us to ask. What is a deacon and what do they do? And the reason I say that is because there are two offices in the church, elder, sometimes called overseer or shepherd, and deacon. And if there's only two offices in the church, it would seem important that we would know what the role of those two offices are. In particular, for us here at New Hope, I think given the fact that we're thinking about implementing deacons, it's important for you to know what a deacon is or what they are supposed to do. And so the goal today is to figure out, okay, what is a deacon? What do they do? How does that fit into the mission of the church? And and importantly, why should you care? I know that um, you may be thinking, well, I don't really care about deacons. So hold on, I'll come back to you, because I think that you should care. Even if you feel like, well, I'll never be a deacon or a deaconess in the church, I think you should care. So the goal today is simply to ask those questions. What is a deacon? What do they do? How do they fit in the mission of the church? And then ultimately, why should you care? Now, to answer that, I think we need to go to Scripture. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think a deacon should do or what I think the role of a deacon looks like. It matters what Scripture teaches. Now, the challenge in saying that is that there's really not a lot of information in the New Testament about the office of deacon. Depending upon how you count it, there's three or maybe four references to the office of deacon in the New Testament. Uh, There's a passage in Romans 16 that refers to Phoebe maybe being a deacon or deaconess of the church, although some would say that's actually just meant to be translated servant, so that's the one that's disputed. There's a clear reference in Philippians 1 when Paul addresses the overseers, which are elders and deacons, and then there's this passage in 1 Timothy that Q just read. Twice in this passage, it mentions the office of deacon. This is the most extensive treatment on the office of deacon in the New Testament. So I want to read it again. All right, So 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. Again, there's very little. This is the most extensive. Verse 8 says this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear Now you'll notice that in this section, in these qualifications for deacons, there is very little that is mentioned about what a deacon should do. There's quite a bit mentioned about what type of person a deacon should be, but there's very little here that's mentioned about what a deacon should actually do. In the other passage I mentioned in Romans 16 or Philippians 1, neither one of those provide any direction either about what a deacon should do in the church. So what is a deacon supposed to do? Well, Actually, I think the term deacon itself is a little bit helpful. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which simply means servant. It's just probably helpful to start there by saying that a deacon is one who serves. But again, that's overly vague. And so the question is, well, what is a deacon supposed to do? I think there's actually one passage that's probably the most helpful. It doesn't specifically mention the office of deacon, but I do think it gives us a picture of what a deacon should do. So it's actually in Acts chapter 6. So if you want to, go and turn to that passage. This is actually where we'll spend most of our time today in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. All right, so let me start here in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now before we go any further here, we need to point out that the office of deacon is not mentioned in this passage. In fact, uh, I don't think there's any reason for us to believe that these seven who were appointed to the task of caring for the tables or caring for the widows... I don't think there's any reason to believe that they were appointed first deacons in any sort of official sense. We don't have any indication that they were given the title of deacon. That said, it does seem likely that what happens here in Acts 6 would actually serve as the pattern later on for the office of deacon. In fact, that's exactly what New Testament scholar scholar Benjamin Merkel argues for. He says this, Acts 6 does, does seem to provide a pattern or a paradigm that was continued in the early church with the office of deacon. And so what's happening here in Acts 6 serves as a paradigm. Uh, Wayne Grudem says it this way, It seems appropriate to think of these seven men as deacons, even though the name deacon had perhaps not yet come to be applied to them as they began this responsibility, for they seemed to be given tasks which fit well with the responsibility of deacons, hinted at in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8-12. to Alright, so if that's the case, if these seven were serving in deacon-like roles, or they were serving as a paradigm or a prototype of the office of deacon that's to come, I think this is a really important passage for us. Again, again, given the scarcity of information about deacons, this is the key passage, I think, in the New Testament for understanding what a deacon is supposed to do. So let's go back to the beginning. Look at the situation, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we're told here in verse 1, That the church is increasing in number. And as it does, they face a problem. There's a little bit of a division that has arisen in the church. And it's over this issue of certain widows being neglected. Now, the church has always had a concern or should have always had a concern for widows. In the book of James, it says, Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so from the very beginning, churches have been given the task of taking care of widows, of those who are in need. In particular, in this culture, Widows were in a very poor position. They would not have money to their name or land to their name. They were in a desperate state. Well, it turns out that some Hellenist widows were being neglected. Now, Hellenist is just a way of saying Greek-speaking Jews. In this case, Greek-speaking Jews who are following Christ. And the complaint is that the Hebrews who were Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jews were neglecting the distribution to the Hellenists. So you have these two cultures in place here. You have the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, and the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Hebrews. And apparently, the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. Now, we're not sure. Was this intentional? Was this a malicious act where they were being neglected? Or perhaps it was just an administrative failure. Perhaps logistically, they hadn't figured out how to care for the Hellenists also. Whatever the case is, this is becoming a serious issue because there's a division in the church now. People are upset about the distribution of food. And so the apostles, recognizing the seriousness of the situation, take quick and decisive action. Look again at what they do in verses 2 to 6. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom whom we will appoint to this duty. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procarius and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, there are a couple of really important things for us to point out from verses 2 to 6. The first is the reason why they felt a need to appoint people to this task. And the reason is because the apostles felt that they had a priority and that they had a calling. And their calling was to preach the word and to pray. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Again, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The 12, I think, rightly understood, the apostles understood, that their calling and their priority was to preach the word, to preach the word and to pray. That doesn't mean, however, that they thought that this task was unimportant. In fact, Given the quickness or given the decisiveness with which they make the decision and the type of people they appoint, it's obvious that they view this to be a serious issue in the church. I think you also need to understand that the apostles don't feel like they're above the situation. In other words, they're not saying, well, you know, we're the apostles. We are not going to serve tables. That's not what's going on here at all. In fact, these apostles were discipled by Jesus who washed their feet. They understood that to lead meant to serve. So this is not an issue of where they feel like they're too good to serve tables or they're above this. That's not at all what's going on here. Instead, what they understood is that they had a calling and they had a role to play. And their role to play was to preach the word. And so they understood that for the good of the church, they needed to appoint someone else to the task. Now, I think the other thing worth noting in verses 2 to 6 are the types of people that they appoint. Now, you would think this distribution of food would be a simple case where they might just call for volunteers. They say, okay, who can go deliver the food next Tuesday? Or who can deliver the food next week? Who can do this? But that's not what they do. That's not what they do at all. In fact, look at what happens in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I think that's an important passage. Because you might think, well, they're just just handing out food. What's the big deal? I think the fact that the apostles are so serious in who they appoint tells us something about the role that these men were to play. So again, this is an important piece of information. We'll come back to it here in just a minute. But the important thing you need to know also is this, that their plan obviously worked. Because look at what happens in verse 7, the very last verse here. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of this passage. If we're trying to figure out the office of deacon, this passage is crucial. Because, again, I think that this passage is meant to serve as the paradigm, or it did serve as the paradigm of the office of deacon that would come later. Again, quoting Benjamin Merkel, he says this, In 1 Timothy 3, now remember, in 1 Timothy 3, that's where the qualifications for deacons are. He says, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul does not list Any of the duties that deacons should perform, because it's likely that the early church understood Acts 6 as a model for deacon ministry. Now, if that's the case, and, and I would agree that is the case, then the question is, what do we learn here from this passage about deacon ministry? Well, actually, I think we can learn quite a bit from this passage about both the roles of elders and deacons. Because it would seem that the way the apostles describe their role is very similar to the way the New Testament describes the role of elders. The apostles believed that their primary task was to preach the word. It would seem that if you look at the New Testament, this is primarily the role of elders also. In fact, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, all of them would seem to suggest this is the primary role of the elders. Now, for the record, I'm going to be listing lots of scripture like that if you're interested in your bullets, and all of those are printed out. But there are scriptures in the New Testament that suggest that the role the apostles fill here is very similar to the role the elders are to fill in the church. Uh, By the same token, the role that the seven fill here seems to be very similar to what deacons should do. In this case, the seven, they serve the church so that they can free up the elders for the task of preaching the word and shepherding the congregation. It's exactly what's going on here in Acts 6. Now, Jimmy Dunlop points out that it's not just that they're serving, though. He says this about the Acts 6 passage. He says that the seven here play two vital roles. They are both servants and shock absorbers. Now, I think that's a fair description for what deacons are to do. Now, the first one is a little bit more self-explanatory, that they're servants. Right? They take care of the physical needs of the widows so that the apostles can continue the primary task of preaching the word. Again, this is very similar to the role of deacons in the church. Deacons are to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the body of Christ so that the elders can teach and shepherd the congregation. In the New Testament, it seems the elders are given those two tasks to teach and to shepherd the congregation. That's not to say it's their only task, but those are the two primary ones. And again, I'd point you to your bulletin. There's six scriptures I listed there. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 1, Acts 20, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 5. All of these would seem to to indicate that this is the role of elders, to teach and to shepherd the congregation. Deacons, on the other hand, are to serve so they can free up the elders. They take care of the physical, and logistical needs of the congregation so that elders can fulfill their role. In fact, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, in the beginning of 1 Timothy 3, there's the qualifications for elders, and then there's the qualifications for deacons. One of the main differences is that deacons are not required to be able to teach. And nowhere is there an indication that they are shepherding the congregation either. Deacons are to provide service and support so that the church can continue to operate smoothly. Now, uh, there's also another role that Dunlop mentions. They are also to serve as shock absorbers. Now, this is, this is a really interesting part of the Acts 6 passage, I think is oftentimes overlooked. As Dunlop points out, in Acts 6, the goal of the seven was not to serve tables. The goal of the seven was to bring about unity in the church. Serving tables was just the means by which that happened. In other words, a hugely important role of deacons that's often overlooked is that they are to build up unity in the church. They serve as shock absorbers. When there's difficult situations that arise, like the one in Acts 6, they absorb the shock. They serve. They build unity so that the church is kept from that disunity and also so that the elders are freed up to do what they need to do. So they absorb the difficult situations and they serve in those situations. So one of the primary tasks then of a deacon is to build unity. It's to be a peacekeeper. It's to make sure that they are absorbing the shock. That, by the way, I think explains why the qualifications listed in First Timothy 3 are what they are. If the whole role of a deacon was just to serve, you would expect that the qualifications would be that they could administrate well, or that they had an ability to finish tasks, or that they were able to see situations clearly and an ability to manage tasks successfully. Now, all those things are great in a deacon, but those are not the things mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. Remember in 1 Timothy 3, it's almost entirely focused on character. Why? Well, I think it's because the deacon primarily is to bring about unity. They are to be a peacekeeper. Based on on this actual uh, testimony in 1 Timothy 3, Dunlop says this, Our churches should select deacons primarily for their track record of peacekeeping and only secondarily for administrative expertise. So deacons, first and foremost, should be peacekeepers. They should promote unity, and then they should serve. And in fact, service is the way that, by which they promote unity. Now, sadly, this is oftentimes not the case. Uh, I served at a Baptist church in the south in Texas for five years. I also volunteered at a church in Kentucky, another Baptist church in Kentucky, for three years. Uh, if you've never been in the south in a Baptist church, I'll just say this. They have a weird history with deacons have a weird history with deacons. Oftentimes deacons are uh, becoming, they're almost like quasi-like elders. They make decisions even though that's clearly not the role of deacons in the church. And so deacons always just kind of this fuzzy relationship. And even though that wasn't the case at the two churches I served at, there was still some, some odd stuff that happened with the deacons. Primarily this was the issue, is that the people who were appointed for deacons were often appointed because one, they'd been at the church for a long time, or two, because they were successful business people. And so it kind of went like this, that if you could uh, handle the business world okay and you were, or if you were able to administrate things well and you'd been at the church for a while, it was just natural that over time you would become a deacon. Well, the problem with that is that it seems to completely dismiss what Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 are saying. Because if the role, as we're saying, is not just to be a servant but to be a shock absorber and to promote unity, it's important that you have the right quality of characteristics in place. So practically what would happen in the churches that I've been a part of and and, uh, churches that I've known of, is that they would appoint these men as deacons who had a track record of being able to handle things administratively and maybe even a willingness to serve, but they weren't peacekeepers. And in fact, some of the most divisive people in the church and some of the most combative were oftentimes the deacons. Well, that's crazy. If you've read Acts 6 or 1 Timothy 3, that makes zero sense. At one of the churches we were at, The most combative person, in fact, the person who's most opposed to the direction of the pastor, was one of the main guys in the deacon body. Well, that makes zero sense of these passages. Because the role of a deacon is not just to serve, but it's to promote unity. They're to serve as both servants and shock absorbers. And they are to carry out these roles so they can free up the elders to do the job that the elders have been given, which is to shepherd and to teach the church. To put it simply, we might say this. Elders have the responsibility for spiritual oversight of the congregation. Deacons serve the physical and logistical needs of the congregation, promoting unity so that the elders can do their job, so that the elders can take care of the spiritual oversight. So when we talk about deacons, that's what we're talking about. I don't know what your perception of deacon was before you walked in here today. Maybe you thought it was just a title in the church that people got if they were there long enough. Or maybe, maybe you thought of the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. I don't know. But whatever your perception was, when we talk about deacons, this is what we mean. We mean servants. We mean shock absorbers. Now, the question might be, well, what role does this play in the mission of the church? Last week, we talked about the mission of the church. And we said that the mission of the church was to proclaim the gospel. It was to preserve the gospel. And it was to display the gospel. Well, deacons play a vital role in this task, and here's how. When deacons are fulfilling their God-given role, it frees up the elders to be able to do their job. Again, in Titus 1, a passage we led last week, it clearly talked about the fact that elders are to proclaim the gospel and preserve the gospel from false teaching. And so when deacons are serving and taking care of logistical needs, they're freeing up the elders to be able to do their job. So, for example, if you have a deacon who's overseeing member care, or if you have a deacon who's taking care of the finances, or if you have a deacon who's taking care of of something else, uh, facilities or something along those lines, that's freeing up the elders to do what they need to do. Now, for the record, our ministry leaders now oftentimes fulfill those roles. And we're not saying that that's a broken system or that our ministry leaders are doing a poor job. We're not saying that at all. But what we are saying is that deacons are very similar to what our ministry leaders do But it's obviously a more formal title, but also there's a bit more intentionality with it. That's the distinction we would make. So if deacons are doing that, if they're serving in the role of caring for the physical needs of people or taking care of finances or whatever the case is, this frees up the elders to do what God has called them to do. And what God has called them to do is to preach the word. What God has called us to do, speaking as one of the elders, is to disciple. It's to shepherd the congregation. It's to protect the flock from false teaching. So, when deacons are doing their job, it frees up the elders to be able to proclaim the gospel and preserve the gospel. Also, when elders and deacons are working together as part of the church body, this displays the gospel. When elders and deacons are able to embrace their roles and work together, this shows the world around that we love Christ and we love his word. And it also is, uh, oftentimes deacons have a very tangible way of being able to show love to the congregation. Think of the situation in Acts 6. When these seven take care of the widows, what are they doing? They're displaying the love of Christ. They're displaying the love of Christ. They're showing that Christ loves people from all cultures, both Hebrews and Hellenists. They're showing that Christ has a desire for the needy and for those who are in trouble. They're showing that Christ has a love for all of his children, that all of the family of God matters. And so when the deacons carry out their role in Acts 6, They are displaying to the world around them, this is what the love of Christ looks like. That's why it's not surprising in verse 7 that we're told that the word of God increases and that the disciples are multiplying because of what the deacons are doing. Why? Because they are displaying the gospel. So I think it's safe to say the deacons have a vital role in carrying out the mission of the church. Now, at this point, though, some of you might be saying, why should I care about this? Right? Maybe you're 13 years old and you're here today and you're like, listen, I have friend issues at school. I could care less about deacons. What does this matter? Or maybe you're just visiting here today and you're like, this isn't even my church. Why would I care if they have deacons? Or maybe you've been a longtime member and you're like, I'm never going to be a deacon or a deaconess. This is not important to me at all. And so you're wondering, what am I doing here today? It just seems like a colossal waste of time. I remember when Tanya and I went on our honeymoon Uh, we were actually able to go to Caribbean Island because someone gave us their timeshare. And as part of the timeshare deal, we had to go and listen to this spiel where they're trying to sell us another timeshare, okay? And so, um, you know, I've said before, when we first got married, we had no money. And so no matter how persuasive this person was or how great they were at their presentation, we were never going to buy another timeshare. And so uh, we got about 10 minutes through, and the guy, he could tell. He's like, oh, man, you guys are never going to buy anything. He says, Why don't you guys just go? And he gives us the gift, which I think was like a sunset cruise or something. But he knew we weren't going to buy. I imagine some of you are feeling that way today. You're thinking to yourself, what am I doing here? I don't care about deacons. Just dismiss me and give me my prize. Now, unfortunately, I have no sunset cruises to offer you today. It's just bagels and juice upstairs probably or or whatever the fellowship time is today. But before you go, before you get up and walk out or before I dismiss you, let me just plead with you and let me explain to you why I think this issue matters. If you're thinking to yourself, why should I care about deacons? This does not matter. I'm going to argue why I think this issue is important. All right? I think there's a couple of things I would say. There's two reasons why this discussion is valuable, even if you could care less about deacons. Okay, here's one. I think this discussion about deacons reminds us of God's love for the church. It reminds us of God's love for the church. The fact that God sets up this structure in the church... The fact that he tells us the types of people that should be deacons. The fact that he tells us what deacons should do. This tells us something about the church. And what it tells us is that God cares deeply about his church. He cares about how his church is run. Now, if you've read the New Testament, this is not surprising. God loved his church so much that he sent his son to die for the church. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that God would care how the church is run. In fact, he loves the church so much that in Ephesians 5, he describes the church as Christ's bride, with the obvious implication being that the church is treasured by Christ, that Christ loves and values the church, that Christ delights in the church, and that he sacrificed everything for the church. Now, of course, for the record, when we talk about a church, we're not talking about a building. I hope you know that by now. Every time I talk about church, I try to bring that up. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a religious structure. We're talking about people. We're talking about believers in Christ. We're talking about the family of God. God very much cares how his church is run. He cares about things like elders and deacons because he loves his church is his bride. Listen, I hope that you love New Hope Fellowship. I think I do. I love New Hope Fellowship. But our love for New Hope is nothing compared to His love for New Hope. Understand this: ultimately, this church, this church is not our church; it is His church. We are underneath Him. He is the chief shepherd, so of course He cares about His church. Now, one thing I've noticed over the years: sometimes people, uh, even especially maybe those who claim to be Christians. And I would say this is true, particularly for the younger generation, although I think it applies to all generations. But I will hear people talking about the church and they talk about it negatively. They point out how the church is full of hypocrites. And by the way, that's true. The church is full of hypocrites. In fact, it's filled with hypocrites today, it's filled with a hypocrite in the pulpit. We are all hypocrites. But they'll point out the church is full of hypocrites. They'll point out that they dislike organized religion. They'll point out all the things that are missing in the church when you compare it to the New Testament. And that's true. Right? There's, there's certainly things that are missing. And I'll be the first to admit that all churches have flaws, including this one. And all churches have hypocrites, including this one. And all churches have imperfect leadership, including this one. But let's be careful how we think and talk about the church. Because the church is the bride of Christ. Listen, my wife is not perfect. She has flaws, but she is my bride. And if you talk poorly about her, you are messing with me. Because she is my bride. Right? She is my love. She is the apple of my eye. And for you to talk poorly about her, that is not something that I take kindly to. So it always surprises me when people say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. Really? What if someone were to come up to me and say, hey, listen, I really like you. I just can't stand your wife. Do you think I would receive that? Well, I'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Cool, let's hang out. No, I wouldn't say that at all. I'd be like, get out of here, you fool. Right? But that's what we talk about Christ sometimes. We say, oh yeah, I love Christ. I don't really like the church. Come on. The bride of Christ is the church. Yes, the church is messed up. Yes, it has flaws, but it is his bride. And the fact that he gives so much detail to deacons and elders tells us, that he loves the church. And so I say this to you more than anything, just to encourage you to have a greater love for the church yourself, to see the church the same way God sees the church. It's imperfect, it is flawed, but it is his bride. And so let's value the church, let's love the church, let's embrace its imperfections, and let's say, yes, we love the church too. So when we talk about deacons, I think one of the great values is that our love for the church should grow. When we see the attention that God gives to something like deacons, we should think to ourselves, oh, he cares about the church. Now, here's another reason why I think it's worthwhile to talk about deacons, because I think it reminds us of the importance of our mission. Again, our mission that we talked about last week. Proclaim the gospel, preserve the gospel, display the gospel. And when we talk about how elders and deacons fit into that, it reminds us, well, God must care about that mission. If he's given us elders and deacons to help fulfill the mission, that tells us something about the importance of the mission. Now, uh, let me be clear. The role of the mission or the the task of the mission is not something just given to elders and deacons. It's for every member of the church. In fact, next week, that's what we're focusing on. What is your role as a member of the church? What is your role in the church? That's what we'll be talking about next week. I think it's safe to say, given the fact that elders and deacons have been given in part to fulfill the mission That the mission is important. As we said last week, proclaiming the gospel matters because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In fact, even today, it's the power of God for salvation. If you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, if you've never come to the point where you recognize that you're a sinner and that you need a savior, today can be the day of salvation. And listen, I I know that in a group this size, even if you've been to church all of your life, there's a great chance that there are multiple, multiple people in here who do not know Christ. And I would plead with you, today can be the day of salvation. And so yes, as a church, we proclaim Christ because it's important. We preserve the gospel. We defend it because we know that in every age, there will be people and there will be spiritual powers warring against this message. And so we preserve the gospel. We defend it. We stand and say, we can do no other. This is where we will lie. We preserve the gospel. We display the gospel. We want to be a congregation that reflects the world around us. Although we come from different backgrounds, although we live in different parts, although we have different jobs, that we have unity together in Christ. We want to display the gospel. And so again, the fact that God has given us deacons as elders to help fulfill the mission reminds us of the importance of the mission. So let us not neglect proclaiming the gospel. Let us not neglect to preserve the gospel. Let us not neglect to display the gospel. Because again, as we said last week, this is the mission of the church. But ultimately, I think we could say this too, that the office of deacon, and for that matter, the office of elder, are both meant to point us to Christ. Think about this. The role of elders is to shepherd and oversee the souls of the congregation. It's a big task. But ultimately, the chief shepherd is Christ. The reason why elders do that, the reason why they shepherd, the reason why they care, the reason why they tend to the souls is because this is what Christ has done, that he is the shepherd, that he has cared for us. And so the reason why elders matter is because they're meant to be a picture. Although, uh, admittedly, elders are flawed, but they're meant to be a picture of the love of Christ shepherding his people. The same is true for deacons. The reason why deacons serve is because Christ served. The reason why they care about attending to the physical and logistical needs is because this is the way Christ worked. He served. In fact, he tells us he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so this is why deacons do what they do, because they want to point people to the love of Christ. And so... If after all of those reasons, you still think deacons are boring, if you still think that this topic doesn't matter, then perhaps the issue is not the topic. Perhaps it's your heart. Because there's no doubt that this topic is meant to point us to some profound truths. Profound truths about the church, profound truths about the mission, profound truths about Christ. Now I know that there's a lot more we could talk about when it comes to deacons. We could talk about specifics like who exactly is qualified, or how would the selection process work, or what practical ways might they serve at New Hope. And in due time, that's where we will head. But today, we just wanted to kind of lay the overarching picture. Who are deacons? What do they do? How does it fulfill the mission, and why does it matter? My hope today is that when you leave and you hear the word deacon, you don't think of some title that is just given to people who have been at the church for a really long time. Or I hope that you don't think of some college sports and their weird nickname in North Carolina at Wake Forest. I hope when you hear the term deacon, what you think of is the love of God. I hope what you think of is the wisdom of God. I hope what you think of is his love for the church. I hope what you think of is his urgency for the mission. And ultimately, more than anything, I hope what you think of when you think of the term deacon, or for that matter, elder, I hope that you are reminded of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's surprising that that's where we would end. Because everything in Scripture, everything that we read about, is meant to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus. And even something like elder and deacon, which at first may seem like just a logistical discussion, ultimately is meant to increase our love for Christ. And so when you hear the word deacon, I hope that you think of Christ and I hope that you worship. Because he loves the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the office of deacon. We thank you that you have given us this office. And we thank you, God, that you've given us this office because it reminds us of the urgency of the mission. It reminds us of your love for the church. And ultimately, it points us to your son. And so, God, we pray that as we move towards deacons here at New Hope that ultimately our love for you would only increase. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.